A federal judge rebukes special counsel Robert Mueller and springs Paul Manafort from life in the clink. Hide your kids, hide your wife. Paul Manafort will be out of prison within about two years. As Mueller goes down at court, wages go up for the first time in over a decade. Amid all the non-traversies, we zoom out and consider what the Trump legacy might look like 20 years down the road. Then, International Women's Day sparks the communist revolution in Russia, and kids go on strike to protest climate change. Do you have to produce something to go on strike? We'll find it. We will analyze all of it. I'm Michael Knowles, and this is The Michael Knowles Show. Updates from Russiagate. Oh, it's taking a tough turn for Democrats. This has been, you know, I forget when it was, a few weeks ago, we had a really tough week for conservatives and we were all kind of down. And then this past two weeks, three weeks maybe, the, the Green New Deal, then you get Ilan Omar spouting anti-Jewish slurs, then you get people defending Ilan Omar and the Democrat Party, then you get Russiagate going down at court really, really bad sign for the special counsel probe and for all the Democrat alarmists on Russia. We'll get to all of it. But first, let's make a little honey. Let's make a little honey money. I've been flying around a lot. I was in Cincinnati last night. We'll talk about that speech as well. But first, let's thank Untuck It. Have you ever wondered why traditional button-up shirts look so long and baggy? Because they were never meant to be worn untucked. But untuck it shirts were specifically designed to be worn. Take a guess. How do you think that they were meant to be worn? The name is Untuck It. Take one guess. Untuck It is the brand that you've been looking for. It's the original untucked shirt, a modern solution to an old problem with no tucking or tailoring required. No matter your size or shape, their shirts are the perfect untucked length. Have you been frustrated about this? This happened to me. Sometimes you want to wear your shirt untucked. So look, sometimes you want to look all, tuck it in and be all formal. But a lot of the time, especially these days, even at work, you want to wear your shirt untucked and you don't want to look like you're wearing a dress. Uh, I've been a fan of Untuck It since before they advertised on the show. Jeremy Boring got me into Untuck It because I think he owns one of every single shirt that they have. The, the thing about Untuck It shirts is, one, the cuts are really great. I went into a brick-and-mortar store, and they fitted me all out and got me the perfect size. But the quality of the material is really, really good. So it's not just this great cut. You also get a really, really high quality. It's going to be much nicer than most of the shirts in your wardrobe. Try it on it in person at one of Untucket's 50 stores, or go to untucket.com to get started. They even offer free shipping and returns on all orders in the U.S. You can save 20% on your first order by using my code, MKS, at checkout, 20% off your first order. Untucket.com, promo code MKS. So we had the sentencing of former Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort. That happened yesterday. You heard they were going to throw the book at him. Mueller wrote up an 800-page report. They didn't want any leniency for him at all. They said, this guy, he's, he's not working with prosecutors the way we want him to. He should get 15, 20 years, maybe more in prison. Guess how much the judge gave him? Judge T.S. Ellis gave him 47 months. But that includes the time he's already been in prison. So actually, he's only going to serve another 38 months. And that's not even true because he's almost certainly going to get out six months early. So he's going to get, what, 32 months? He's going to be out in a little over a year or a little over two years, two and a half years. That is a huge rebuke of Mueller. And that's what this is really about. 
the stakes here are for the Russia investigation. This judge, T.S. Ellis, actually, in a, in a fairly direct sense, rebuked the special counsel investigation here because he made a point to acknowledge that this sentence, these crimes, had nothing to do with the Trump campaign and Russia. This is a humiliation for the special counsel. This is a humiliation for the Russia probe. Manafort was the guy. He was the one who worked with the Russians for years. He was working with pro-Russian forces in Ukraine. He was in, when he was running the Trump campaign, he was talking to people. He must have had nefarious dealings. They went after him, 800 page report, and they give him 47 months, which really becomes 32 months. Pathetic. Oh, absolutely pathetic. So what, what is the point here? What, where does this come from? Why was it so different than all of the uh, mainstream media expected? This gets to the importance of the judges, because this judge, as the mainstream media are going to tell you now, was appointed by Ronald Reagan in 1987. Oh, they are fuming. Oh, they wanted Manafort to rot, never see his kids again. Here is the reaction from MSNBC. It says this judge Ellis has never read the first thing about Paul Manafort, had never known that Paul Manafort was known as the leader of something called the Torturers Lobby for representing unsavory dictators around the world long before ever he ever came to Donald Trump's orbit. And, you know, this wasn't just a, a one-off, you know, brief period of crime here that he's been accused and convicted of. This was a 10-year crime spree, as Mueller, as prosecutors have laid out. This was a massive effort to defraud banks and evade taxes um, for a long time and then to to lie and commit felonies after already admitting guilt and making a deal with prosecution. So it's, it's a really surprising outcome from a federal judge who, uh, you know, from what I'm told by prosecutors who've been in front of this court, tends to be a lot harder on uh, poor defendants than on white-collar offenders. Excuse me just one second. I'm sorry, I should have done it. I just wanted to make sure I could hear the whole clip. Oh, yeah. That's nice. You just get off an airplane. You're feeling a little dehydrated. Luckily, MSNBC provides all of the waterworks that we want. A crime spree from Paul Manafort. What is Paul Manafort's crime? His crime is wearing tailored Italian suits is what his crime is. <laughs> he's, he's spent too much money on his suits. The guy's a lobbyist. Lobbyists work with crooked people. That's what he did. Is he a little bit crooked? Yes, obviously. A crime spree? Are you kidding me? There's so, and then, then they just try to completely twist it. They say, well, he's really hard on poor people. Uh, he's, the judge is probably a racist too. He's no, because they, they wanted to send him to the clink for anything. They are so desperate. This is the trouble. You know, last night I, I was talking about global warming at the University of Cincinnati. And I, I made the point, if you are going to predict the end of the world, if you are going to predict the apocalypse, you only get to do that once. You gotta be right. When you make these huge accusations, when you make these huge predictions, like Donald Trump committed crimes with the Russian government to steal the 2016 election, his presidency is illegitimate, he needs to be in prison. When you make those kind of claims, the truth is gonna come out at some point. When Al Gore says the world's gonna end in 15 years, when Ocasio Cortez says the world's gonna end in 12 years, that time is going to come. He said that the polar ice caps could be melted by 2014. 2014 came. It seemed like it was so far in the distance. 
when Al Gore made that movie in 2006. But then 2014 came around, what happened? There was more ice mass in the polar ice caps than there was in 2006. And then he became a laughingstock. And then no one saw his sequel. And now nobody listens to Al Gore. Even fewer people listen to him now than listen to him in 2006. That's the trouble with the Russia claims. They were so furious after they lost the 2016 election, they had to blame it on somebody, so they blamed it on the Russians. They made up this huge story that has distracted our politics for over two years now. They bet the farm on this Russia conspiracy thing, and it's just not panning out. And the worst that you're getting is a, a longtime lobbyist getting a slap on the wrist, and he's got to go to the clink for a couple years. It's a humiliation. And what else in Russia Gate? We found out today, you remember Trump's personal lawyer, Michael Cohen, testified before Congress and basically gave nothing, no new information, just testified that Trump is a big meanie and a really bad guy. Well, now it's come out that Michael Cohen met privately with the House Intelligence Committee chairman, Democrat Adam Schiff, for 10 hours to prepare for that testimony. Four separate occasions. 10 hours of testimony. Schiff, who lives in California, represents a district in California, flew out to New York to meet with Michael Cohen. Now, you, you have to wonder, okay, what, uh, what was he doing? Was he, obvi- I mean, obviously he was coaching the witness. This is not good. That's not a good look for Democrats. Why did they do that? Because they knew it was going to come up empty. And apparently Adam Schiff's not a very good coach because 10 hours of coaching later, Michael Cohen still looks like a schmuck on Capitol Hill. Still doesn't give you anything. So desperate. So now, now they're launching investigations into the finances and the business and the this and the, it just looks so desperate because the, the clock ran out for them. They said, okay, we're going to, this Russia thing, we're going to Go as hard as we can with Russia. You can't go forever. Eventually, people need you to put up or shut up. You have to produce results. And now they've got nothing. Now the dog ate their homework. And it's a a beautiful sight to behold. Michael Cohen, we know he lied to Congress. He was convicted of lying to Congress. He's the first convicted liar to Congress to be called back to testify before Congress. And we know he lied there again. We know that he lied about not wanting a job in the White House. It's a matter of public record. He sought a job in the White House. We know that he lied about not seeking a pardon. He did seek a pardon, matter of public record. They just end up with egg on their face, being rebuked and reprimanded by a federal judge who has a good sense of justice here. By the way, I hope Paul Manafort still gets pardoned. Not because what he did wasn't wrong. Of course it was wrong. He's a lobbyist. Lobbyists tend to work with pretty crooked uh, institutions and do kind of crooked things. But th- do you, does anyone really believe Paul Manafort would be in prison right now if he had not committed the real crime of helping Donald Trump become president? That's the crime. That's what they, they knew that that was what he was being investigated, what he was being prosecuted for. And, and this judge, I think in a very fair way, actually carrying forth justice, said, we're not going to throw away the rest of this guy's life because you don't like that he helped a Republican win the White House. 
Some other good news for conservatives, the economy doing very well. Actually, there's some bad news couched in a lot of good news. The bad news is we only added 20,000 jobs in February, but job growth basically flatlined. This is way below expectations. Now, February is a slow month. Probably this is just a weird fluke. Um, and, And I say that, I don't say that to try to brush a bad jobs number under the rug. It's just that right now we currently have a record number of people employed. So this is, I think, the 18th record that we've hit during the Trump presidency. We've got 157 million people in this country employed. That's an all-time record. So you can't really say, well, they've only added 20,000 jobs. Well, okay, I mean, our unemployment rate is basically zero. Or I think the unemployment rate is about 3.8%, which is about as low as you can possibly get it. Labor force participation way up, 63.2%. During the Obama years, he would always try to cook the unemployment numbers by hiding relatively low labor force participation. But here, it's relatively high. So this is really good economic news. And uh, and this is true across the board. So uh, unemployment rates for adult women, teens, blacks, and Asians stayed about the same, all near historic lows. And unemployment for adult men, whites, and especially Hispanics dropped uh, pretty precipitously in February. And, and so you've got really tight employment, regardless of what the job growth number is. You've got really tight employment. What does that mean? Wages are finally rising for the first time basically in my life. I mean, it's been a long time since, since real wages have risen for people. We've got 3.4% wage growth year over year. This is uh, really good news for the American worker who hasn't really had a raise in 10, 15 years. First time in a long time. And so you see those two competing narratives. Obviously, you're not going to hear that on MSNBC or CNN. You're not going to hear the good economic indicators. They're going to focus on Donald Trump's tweets about no collusion. They're not going to talk about all those boring statistics of how a record number of Americans have jobs, unemployment across the board for every demographic is near record lows. You're not going to hear that. But what, what is the Trump legacy going to be? This is sort of what I was thinking about is I'm, I'm getting this t- opposite information, you know, Russia, 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 illegitimate, blah, blah, and you say, oh, Everything's going great. It reminds me that history changes very quickly. Currently, the entire news cycle is Russia, Stormy Daniels, porn stars, total nonsense. But history and and historical views of presidents change very quickly. When I was a kid, Bill Clinton was actually impeached for lying under oath, for uh, taking his intern into the Oval Office and making her into a human humidor and then humiliating her before the entire world. Actually impeached. And then for the, for 15 years after the Clinton administration, he was the most popular guy in the world. His popularity recovered so much. All people had were memories of that great 1990s economy. All they had were memories of the basically the economy that was permitted by the Reagan administration. And then you had this huge once in a, once in a 200 years tech explosion with uh, the internet and people loved Clinton. He was on the campaign trail all the time for Democrats. Even some Republicans wanted his endorsement. Now think about the Reagan administration. During the Reagan administration, you heard of all these scandals, the Iran Contra affair, there were, it was just a completely made-up affair because we were trying to fight communists in Latin America. Oh, no. Oh, how terrible. 
And they tried to make this into a big issue. They tried to take his presidency down for it. Then there was a rumor, you know, that Nancy Reagan was interested in astrology. They tried to make this a huge story, big headlines. Nobody remembers that. I mean, nobody, I think, in the millennial generation could explain to you what the Iran-Contra scandal is. How many, think about that. If if you're under 30 listening to this show, could you explain actually what the Iran-Contra affair is? I guess it's referenced sometimes on TV news. No, it's nothing. It's nothing with regard to the Reagan administration. When we look back at the Reagan administration, we think booming economy, defeat the Soviet Union. Those are the two things. I mean, the, the, the man has basically been deified 30 years after he left office, or now I guess approaching 40 years after he entered office. And he's, he's become better and better and better every year. So what will it be for Donald Trump? Is it going to be Russia? No, the Russia thing is nothing. Is it going to be Paul Manafort did a deal with a pro-Russian Ukraine? No. Is it going to be Stormy Daniels got it? No. Nobody will remember her name in like five years. That is going to go away. I think what the legacy is going to be is the economy and judges. Now, who knows? The economy could tank. You could have, anything could happen. If he has a second term, then you, you could have, obviously, anything could happen. But just right now, if this were the Trump administration, if he were leaving office today, what would that legacy be? It'd be the economy and the judges. And the judges are so important because you look, 1987, Ronald Reagan appoints Judge Ellis to the court. Say, okay, well, who cares about the judges? Because at moments like this, when real battles are happening, where real overreach is happening, like this Russia investigation, real constitutional questions are being raised, we have that Reagan-era judge to stand up for the Constitution, to stand up for law, and to stand up for justice. And Donald Trump has filled the courts with judges. This is a pretty, pretty good thing. What does the future then look like for the right and the left? Because you hear all this talk of anti-Semitism on the left. You hear all this talk of nationalism on the right. And looking into the future, I think people have a sort of bleak view of it. Here, here's Thomas Sowell, the great uh, economist Thomas Sowell, giving his uh, unfortunate view of socialism coming to America the future of America. I mean, do you think that we are destined to go through a period of of socialism, a period where these ideas that have not worked, no matter where they've been tried and certainly wouldn't work here, will be tried here and and could bring down our country? Well, uh, the the, the, uh, predictions of economists uh, do not encourage me to go go far (laughs) in that direction. Uh, But I do have a great fear that in the long run, we may, um, we may not make it. And, and uh, I hate to say that, but... And, and the one thing that keeps me from being despairing is, uh, is, of course, we don't know. There's so many things we can't possibly know. And so we, we may make it. But I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't bet on it. Thomas Sowell wouldn't bet on it. Very intelligent guy. Very good observer of culture and politics. Obviously, great economist. Economics is a dismal science. And I'm reminded, though, of John Maynard Keynes, another great economist, who said, in the long run, we're all dead. So what, what Thomas Sowell is seeing is that America is careening towards socialism. That may well be true. It certainly was careening towards socialism in the 60s and 70s. 
And then Reagan came in and changed all of that. Now it seems to be careening towards socialism again. Can we stop it now? President Trump says America will never be a socialist nation. The way I'm seeing the future, though, is that the right and the left are beginning to look a lot more in America like they do in Europe. We're told this is a very terrible thing. Oh, no, no. American right, right wing is totally different, way better than the European right wing. They're not comparable at all. And the American left wing used to be very different than the European left wing. Now we're seeing a little bit more similarity. What is the European left wing? It's anti-Semitic and socialist. (laughs) That's it. I can describe it in two categories. And and you're seeing that turn with the new fresh faces of Congress. You're seeing them say no to the party leadership. They say, this is the direction that we want to go in. We don't like Israel. We don't really like the Jews that much. And uh, we love socialism. Okay, that's a lot. And the American right a little bit is heading in that European direction of embracing nationalism, of saying, listen, we like our country. We like our our culture. We want to talk a little bit more about our country and our culture and securing our borders and not just saying that anybody can come in whenever they want, do whatever they want. We're going to focus a little bit more on the nation and the nation state, the Westphalian system that has governed the world for 400 years. Now, President Trump has made this point pretty clear. He was at, before he was getting on an airplane today to go look at the crisis in Alabama. He called out the Democrats as they are in typical Trumpian, no uncertain terms. I thought yesterday's vote by the House was disgraceful because it's become, the Democrats have become an anti-Israel party. They become an anti-Jewish party. True. That's true. That's true. And he could say, he could take it even further and say they've become the European left. But I'm not sure that this is a terrible thing. I mean, it's obviously, I, I don't want socialism and I don't hate Jews, so I don't li- but I don't like the left either, so, you know, where are we? But I don't think it's such a terrible thing that clearer distinctions are being made. Because I think when people say, well, the, the European form of politics and the American form of politics are totally different, they're incomparable, they have nothing to do with one another, that's obviously ridiculous. We come from Europe. Our country comes from Europe. Our laws come from Europe. Our political philosophy comes from Europe. Our culture comes from Europe. Our religion comes from the religion that built Europe. That's where our ideas come from. And so it's not surprising that our politics might have some similarity to European politics as well. Maybe there was a divergence for a period after the war, the Second World War, where Europe was so decimated, America was unchallenged in the West, that there might have been some divergence, the sort of liberal consensus, the American hegemony throughout all of, all of the West. But uh, those days were obviously numbered. At a certain point, the, the West is going to rebuild, Europe is going to rebuild, and things are going to change. It's certainly after the fall of the Soviet Union, those, those two superpowers dividing the world up amongst them changed. Then there was American hegemony. There was the American superpower. Now you have other powers rising as well. And those old eternal political questions come back. And I think the future looks not, it doesn't look exactly like our past, but by looking at our past, we can learn about our future. This is the trouble in the United States where we don't study history. People don't study history. They don't study history in 
elementary school, middle school, high school, they don't study it in college. What they study is ideology. And that's a very poor substitute. And if people want to see where the politics is going, it would probably behoove them to look into our history, to look into our past. Unfortunately, though, today, the left is so busy trying to erase our past, censor our past, knock down statues, turn away murals, turn away depictions, that they're not, they're not going to be able to learn very much, and which is where you get childish idiocy and activism, such as the global climate strike, which is being led by actual children. And the left believes this is a very beautiful and profound thing. We'll get to that. We'll also obviously get to International Women's Day, one of the worst days in the history of the world. Not because I look, I love women. You know I love women. But International Women's Day is just a communist contrivance that destroyed Russia and much of the 20th century. We'll explain how, but first go to dailywire.com. 10 bucks a month, $100 for an annual membership. You get me. You get the Andrew Glavin Show. You get the Ben Shapiro Show. You get to ask questions in the mailbag. You get to skip the Matt Walsh Show. You get to ask questions backstage. You get another kingdom. And you get 47 months for Paul Manafort. Oh, no. Oh, that's good. Get your Tumblr so that you can store your 47-month supply of leftist tears. Go to dailywire.com. We'll be right back with a lot more. The global climate strike. So there was a, a story that came out. Set your calendars, March 15th. All the kids are going on strike. This was the headline, quote, adults won't take climate change seriously. So we, the youth, are forced to go on strike. March 15th, global climate strike inspired by a 15-year-old Swedish girl who would cut class once a week and called it a strike for global warming. And now there's going to be a big day where all the kids do this. I see a couple problems with uh, all the kids going on strike. The first is that kids don't produce anything. Kids, all they do is consume. At school, they consume knowledge. At home, they consume food. They consume clothing. They consume money. So if they go on strike, I don't know that anyone's going to complain. I don't think anybody's going to be uh, harmed by the kids going on strike. I don't think that uh, it's, it's going to mess up anybody's day or anybody's schedule. The other problem that I see is that kids, uh, being kids, can be grounded. So, so if they all cut class, their parents can ground them. The parents can actually strike the kids. I don't mean physically. They can, I guess they can do that too. I mean they can strike that. They can prevent the kids from doing activities. They can prevent them from going out with their friends. They can prevent them from uh, you know, going to the movies on Friday night. They can prevent them from using their cell phones. And they can prevent them from striking because they are kids. And they have parents. So I don't think the strike is going to go very well. But I love the language of it. I don't really mean to beat up on these kids. I mean to beat up on the Democrat Party, which is just as childish. They write, quote, We, the youth of America, are fed up with decades of inaction on climate change. On Friday, March 15th, young people like us across the United States will strike from school. Okay. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Breaking news. Teenagers cut class. Okay, fine. 
the, the story goes on. For decades, the fossil fuel industry has pumped greenhouse gas emissions into our atmosphere. This is not true. That's not true. For decades, you have pumped greenhouse gases into our atmosphere. For decades, I have pumped greenhouse gases into our atmosphere. The fossil fuel industry is not an evil gangster cabal. The fossil fuel industry gives us a product that we all buy and want and need for our lives. They don't, they don't put the gas into your car and then drive your car around. They don't, you do that. You're the one doing, I mean, this is the problem with climate change. They they want to put the villainy off on somebody else. They say, oh, it's the man. It's, it's the wicked capitalist who's polluting our, no, you're doing it. You're, do you like your cell phone? Well, you're, you got to mine cobalt. You got to get, make plastics. You, and those plastics aren't going to break down. And then when you throw out your cell phone after two years, it's going to end up in the Pacific Ocean because of you, because you want it. Do you like your cheap consumer goods from China? Do you like your cheap electronic goods? Do you like getting around? Do you like having heating during the winter? Do you like air conditioning during the summer? Because you are the one releasing all of that carbon emission. By the way, the world isn't going to end in 12 years. It's not. I'll bet every single penny that I have to my name that the world doesn't end in 12 years. Please, someone take me up on that bet. Nobody seriously even believes it. All they want to do is hate someone else. All they want to do is blame someone else for their problems, which aren't even real problems. You see this even beyond climate change. We talk about our society. We talk about our history. There's always the mean, terrible guy, the big daddy, the patriarchy, this, it's someone, no, it's you, you, you have a say, you have free will, you are in this society. You don't have, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez taking a thousand Ubers during her campaign, flying across the country 66 times for a congressional race where you are in a district, you don't need to fly even once, spending 30 grand on car ride services, spending 25 grand on flights, and then complaining because of the polluters. You're the polluter. Stop flying. Or stop complaining about a fake problem. They do, they, it's all this fantasy. And it's all this shirking responsibility. And it's everybody's fault except for my own. And, it's, and the Macedonians stole the election. And the Russians stole the election. And James Comey, it's everybody's fault except Hillary Clinton that she lost. It's everybody's fault except for you. And it's, a, it's pathetic, but I think it is endemic to the, the leftist, leftist activism these days. And I, I like to bring up the kids because this is what kids do. The kids, you know, they've got the, they're reaching into the cookie jar. They're reaching into the leftist tears cookie jar and they've got their hand in there. And then mom comes in the room and say, Michael, do you have your hand? No, no, no. Uh. So, uh, someone made me do it. No, I, no, I don't have, no. Okay, that's how children behave. Okay, sort of cute or at least understandable when children do it. But now we have an entire political party doing it. Now we have half of the country doing it. We have presidential candidates doing it. Take some responsibility. Stop behaving like children. I can't imagine that that's going to play very well in 2020. But then the, the story goes on. The kids say, quote, The alarming symptoms of climate denialism, a serious condition affecting the whole ways of government and the general population, mark our current historical crossroads 
of make it or break it action on climate change. Apparently, the kids never learned not to mix metaphors in their English class. Maybe they should walk out of English class. There's not, not doing, I don't mean to make fun of their writing, but it's not good writing. And I'll defend them in the sense that I don't think Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez could put together a more coherent sentence. Listen to what they say. The alarming symptoms of climate denialism. So what they mean by denialism, first of all, they're comparing normal people to Holocaust deniers. But they're saying, if you don't believe that the world is going to end in 12 years, you are a denialist and you have a symptom. It's a symptom of a psychological condition called climate denialism. You're not in your right mind. This is not, you you are insane. You are a lunatic if you don't think that the world is going to end in 12 years. That's the symptom. They're talking in psychological terms because our culture is so materialistic these days. It's so scientistic that we can only talk about our minds and our souls in physical terms. So we say, oh, different chemicals are firing off. Different neurons are firing when we fall in love or feel joy or feel fear. And that's what they're saying here. Then they say it's a serious condition. How do you cure the condition? Through force, I suppose. It's just agitating for socialism. That's all it is. Now, it's, it's, noteworthy, by the way, that these socialists, because that's all it is. The Green New Deal is just socialism. It is noteworthy that these socialists always go after kids and women. They always go after the International International Union of Students was put up by the Soviet Union. The World Federation of Democratic Youth put up by the Soviet Union. They're always going after kids and women. and, uh, And nowhere is this more apparent than today on March 8th on International Women's Day. The Google Doodle today for International Women's Day was that little, you know, the women's sign. I think a lot of women in this country think that International Women's Day is about women, but it's not. International Women's Day is the launch of communism in the West. Google Doodle today, International Women's Day. They don't have a hammer and sickle on the Google Doodle. The New York Times says, quote, International Women's Day isn't going anywhere. What's the history? I don't know. They don't say. NBC says, International Women's Day 2019. History, theme, and importance. What is the history, theme, and importance? The day isn't simply a celebration. It's a call to action for everyone to continue to push for complete gender equality. Okay, but what's the history? What's it about? Okay, they say, the early 20th century was a time when women were becoming more active in their protests against oppression and gender equality, leading marches and campaigns to demand equal rights. According to the official International Women's Day website, during the International Conference of Working Women in 1910, Clara Zetkin of Germany's Social Democratic Party proposed that a day be set aside every year across the world to celebrate women and reinforce their demands. That's half true, but that misses the whole point because it actually didn't start in 1910. The first International Women's Day started a year before that in 1909, and it didn't start because of the Social Democratic Party. It started because of the Socialist Party and the communist parties. The first one ever was held in New York, 1909, organized by the Socialist Party of America. Then, in 1910, the International Socialist Women's Conference created International Women's Day. So, okay, that's the first two years of it. Fast forward seven years. 
You've got the, the October Revolution in 1917 happens. After the October Revolution, Vladimir Lenin made International Women's Day a national holiday in the Soviet Union. It's one of the first things he did. Why? Why did he prioritize this day so much? He prioritized it because on International Women's Day, March 8th, 1917, an International Women's Day demonstration actually started the Russian Revolution. This is, the, you can blame International Women's Day for killing 100 million people in the 20th century. I wish it weren't true, but it is just a communist contrivance. Whenever you hear things with international in it, usually you're talking about communist contrivances. The, the protest started because women textile workers who were in Petrograd decided that they were going to have a demonstration. This had been whipped up by communist agitators. Leon Trotsky knew about this. And uh, Trotsky said of the demonstration, quote, meetings and actions were foreseen, but we did not imagine that this Women's Day would inaugurate the revolution. So they planned some meetings, some demonstrations. This thing kicked off the whole revolution. This International Women's Day was celebrated almost exclusively by communist countries and socialist activists until 1975 when the UN adopted it. So, you know, not much of a change exactly. And now to prove Thomas Sowell's point, unfortunately, it seems that as America is becoming more socialistic, more left wing, they're adopting this day too. It's a terrible day. We need a National Women's Day. I'd take a National Women's Day, celebrate American women. That's very good. But International Women's Day, just like all of these internationalist schemes, they're trying to divvy up all of society along certain demographic lines, class lines, gender lines, racial lines, whatever. Women of the world unite, workers of the world unite, and break down national boundaries. We shouldn't do that. We should have National Women's Day. I don't know what day that would be. I guess it could be uh, Abigail Adams' birthday or something. We'll have to think about this. This is very important. Um, all of this sort of navel-gazing, which is what you see on International Women's Day. Obviously, they hide the communist origins of it. They try now to just celebrate it as girl power. Look at me. Look at how great we are. Captain Marvel's really a great movie. It's only sexism that is having all of the male and female reviewers say that it's terrible. It's, hey, it's us, us, us. This is a culture of just celebrating yourself all the time. This is a culture that has pride parades. This is a culture that is uh, insistent on that sort of thing. Um, there was a really negative outcome of that sort of culture. And it's like, it's a funny headline, but I do feel bad for the guy. A billionaire named Ehud Aurier Laniado died this week during penis enlargement surgery at the age of 65 in a posh Paris clinic. People giggle at the headline. It's really, the man died. This is a billionaire. You got all the money in the world. You die on a penis enlargement surgery. His friends say that he was always obsessed with his appearance. He was, I guess he wasn't that tall. He obviously had some other physical issues that he was dealing with. And he was insecure about these things. He would have his accountant read out his bank account statement multiple times a day. Man has all the money in the world, could live a very long life, and he dies because of this sort of frivolous surgery. There, there's an important lesson here for a perverse culture. You know, when scripture talks about how 
the rich will be made to look like fools, the proud will be made to look like fools, folly, folly, all is folly. Those are not just empty words. You can see that happen in something like this. You can see it, it even broadening the sense of just self-gratification and constantly needing self-gratification. You've got the owner of the New England Patriots. Guy has everything in the world. And he says, well, I think I'm willing to risk it all for a $50 rub and tug massage at a parlor in Jupiter, Florida. He goes into a sketchy massage parlor to throw away all of this. This is very, I mean, it is funny in a very dark way. It's, it's funny that, that the heart of man is so perverse that you could have everything, billions of dollars, uh, winningest football team in all of history and be willing to throw it all away for nothing, for some cosmetic surgery or for a rough lower body massage <laughs> at a massage parlor in Jupiter, Florida. That is funny in a very dark way, but there is a real effect to that. And it reminds me that joy has to always be closely guarded. You know, we're, we're in Lent now. We're in Lenten, Lenten period where Christians traditionally fast, they abstain from meat, they're contemplating their mortality. On Ash Wednesday, the priest puts ashes on your forehead and says, remember man that thou art dust and unto dust thou shalt return. You, you think about these things and you, tr- you try to take stock of, of this life. And this mortality, you realize you only have so much time in this world and you want to make the most of it. You realize that you're, you behave badly very often. You, you want to minimize that. You feel sorry for that. You, you regret that. You confess those sins. You, you really take stock and you, and you have, hopefully, a sense of humility. This Lenten period is a great, anect- er, is a great antidote, rather, for pride. Doesn't mean we need false modesty. False modesty is just another form of pride, but true humility does away with false modesty. And when you think of stories like this, you think, gosh, a billionaire, he's got everything in the, he's a diamond billionaire. So he made his billions in really valuable diamonds and he's got everything, yachts, girls, this, that, and he throws it all away for some little insecurity, for some little pride. Some guy owns the New York, or the, owns the New England Patriots throws it all away for just a little, a little more gratification. If it can happen to them, it can happen to you, it can happen to me. You've got to really guard that. You've really, you've really got to guard something. That anxiety Thomas Sowell feels, this country is going to throw itself away for socialism. You've got to really guard that precious thing that we've got. You've got to really uh, cherish it, really, really protect it. That's our show. This is nice to have a Friday show today. I got to get out of here because we're running late as usual. But I will see you all on Monday. In the meantime, I'm Michael Knowles. This is The Michael Knowles Show. The Michael Knowles Show is produced by Robert Sterling. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Senior producer, Jonathan Hay. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. And our technical producer is Austin Stevens. Edited by Danny D'Amico. Audio is mixed by Dylan Case. Hair and makeup is by Jesua Olvera. Production assistant, Nick Sheehan. The Michael Knowles Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2019. Hey guys, over on the Matt Walsh Show today, we're going to talk about the Democrats and their reluctance to condemn anti-Semitism. Why are they so reluctant? Well, it has to do with the left's victimization flowchart, their um, equation of victimization. Very complicated. We'll try to sort through it today. Also, 
AOC, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, thrives on false narratives. And she was pushing another false narrative yesterday, a pretty, pretty absurd one. We'll discuss. Finally, I'll answer some interesting uh, listener-submitted emails today as well over on The Matt Walsh Show.